is it Robin? No. Oh, it's not. My watch is a minute late. So we're going to start because something exciting has happened. Our projector lamp is dying. And um, there were some pictures I wanted to show you. And maybe I can get to them in the first 10 minutes before it dies. So we'll see. So we're starting. Okay. Um, we have come to that part in the gospel uh, that we call Palm Sunday. Oh. Okay. And oh. I'm not going to touch anything except for this. Okay. So, um. So when, from the time Jesus first told Peter that he would found his church on him in Matthew 16, the first teaching he gave his church, if you remember, was that his own path was going to lead to Jerusalem, to suffering and to death, so that he could complete his mission on earth and rise again. And if you remember, that news did not go over well. That was not a great welcome to the church message. Um, and they did not want to hear that their beloved friend and teacher and miracle worker was going to die under these horrible and disgraceful circumstances. Um, you guys had lived in me complaining about Holly in her senior year. I just want to let you know she's gotten better. And maybe I have. <laughs> because this past quarter at UW, she let me come and sit in on a class with her. And she, I know, I know, and she even told me at one point, you can raise your hand if you want. <laughs> but um, anyways, I did not raise my hand. I said, I'm not paying for this. Well, I am paying for this class. But, um, no, instead I bothered her in other ways. I said, look at that kid. He played video games the entire time. And his parents are paying thousands of dollars and he's not even paying attention. So she had to put up with lots of speeches like that. But anyways, the point being, the class we took together was called um, Art and History of Rome. And oh, it was wonderful. I recommend you guys, what are we all doing here? We should just get on the bus and go over and sit in on classes. Um, but the art professor, so they have a history professor teach on Tuesdays and the art professor would teach on Thursdays. And he said that for centuries, for centuries, um, Christian art avoided showing Jesus on the cross. They were traumatized for centuries by what happened, by that horrific part of Jesus' story. And so he showed us some really early Christian art and um, hilarious, you know, Jesus in a Roman outfit and you know, all kinds of stuff, but not Jesus on the cross until centuries had passed. Um, so anyways, the whole church kind of had PTSD about it. And so Matthew 21 is going to bring us to the beginning of the end or the end of the beginning of Jesus' ministry, depending on how you look at it. In Luke 13, 33, Jesus says, a prophet cannot die outside of Jerusalem. So ever since the first temple was built by Solomon, J Jerusalem was where it was at for the people of Israel, right? And it, if it has that significance for the people of Israel, it has that greater significance for the whole world. Jerusalem is where it's at. Zechariah, um, who gets quoted here, Zechariah 8, 23, says, Many peoples and strong nations shall come to seek the Lord of hosts in Jerusalem and to entreat the favor of the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, In those days, ten men from the nations of every tongue shall take hold of the robe of a Jew, saying, Let us go with you, for we have heard that God is with you. Right? So there was this idea, 
it was significant not only for the people of Israel, but for the whole world. That people were going to say, the Jews are the ones are the ones who worship the true God, and they're going to take hold of that and say, please, take us with you. Um, so when they were exiled, when the Israelites were exiled, they knew it was Jerusalem they wanted to return to and rebuild. And Jesus knows that. And like everyone else, he knows when the Messiah comes, he will come to Jerusalem. Uh, so like a wedding, like a church service, like a graduation, there are certain traditions and expectations placed on this Messiah, right? That there are certain things that have to happen. Okay, I was going to tell you a story, but I'm not going to because this thing might go out. Okay, um, so Jesus has conformed to some of these things during his ministry, and he has flat out not conformed to other ideas people have. But when he begins his final stage, he begins by conforming to expectations, right? And sending a signal that he is who he is. So if you look at the... Oh, yes! Okay, the beginning of the chapter. I'm going to read kind of fast because the pictures, you know. Um, okay, and when they drew near to Jerusalem and came to Bethphage, or however you say it, to the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go into the village opposite you, and immediately you'll find an ass tied. Does yours say donkey? Oh, yeah, sorry. A donkey tied. And colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say, The Lord has need of them and he will send them immediately. This took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet, saying, Tell the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, and on a colt, the foal of a donkey. The disciples went and did as Jesus directed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and put their garments on them, and he sat thereon. Most of the crowd spread their garments on the road, and others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. And the crowds that went before him and that followed him shouted, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And when he entered Jerusalem, all the city was stirred, saying, Who's this? And the crowd said, This is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. Okay, so Jesus receives this rock star welcome to Jerusalem. So funny because if you heard the uh, director of modern worship here at the church, he went on a trip with some of the New Hope worship pastors to Rwanda, and he had never experienced anything like it because apparently these lovely New Hope men that have been helping with our worship are apparently celebrities at home. And it's the, it's the total immigrant story, right? You're a big deal at home, and then you come to America, and you've got to start over, right? So apparently they're big deals there. And so Evan said he saw billboards with their pictures, because they were advertising these concerts they were going to do. And one was one of those billboards that changes pictures. So it's like, Antoine, Trezor, and Evan Jarrell. I was like, you know, he took a video for his life. I'm on a billboard, right? And he said when he... Um, when they got up and they had their concert, he did, at one point, he got up and sang in Kinyuandan, right? The language they speak in Rwanda. And he said, he texted Scott and he said, they cheered for me like I was Taylor Swift. <laughs> <laughs> so, okay, so when people have expected you, they've seen the billboards about you, right? Um, you have gotten everyone pumped up and, um, then, and you've been hanging with all the right people. People have big expectations, and that is what Jesus receives. They're like, oh, he's doing the prophet thing. There he is with the donkey and everything, and coming in just like the prophet Zechariah said. This is, he must be it, right? Um, 
So Jesus begins sending the Messiah signals publicly. He is accepting his role at this point. You remember early on, he would often heal people and say, don't tell anyone. Just go, go see the priest, but don't tell anyone about it. Right? It was not the time yet, but now is the time. He is sending the signals. He is the one that has been waiting. Um, quick, we're going to get to at least one picture. I wanted to show you, um, I think Scott talked about this in sermon. The, the difference between Jesus' triumphal entry and, say, one of the culture at large. Um, if you look at it, so Romans had triumphal entries, Greeks had triumphal entries. Basically, anytime you conquered somebody in battle, you had a little triumph over the vanquished ones, and then you'd usually have one again at home, so they could celebrate you at home. Um, so if you compare the triumphs, Oh, did you see a little bit? Okay, hold that in your mind. Okay, just picture it. Um, uh, Rampus might play around and turn it on again and see if we can do it a few times, but we'll see. Okay, so, um, so when the Prince of Peace enters, and you saw that nice little painting of him sitting on the donkey and got the other one trucking along, and if your, your Bible knows, you probably say, no, 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 you know, there was only one animal he was sitting on, and this is a misunderstanding by Matthew. Called, who cares, right? He came in on at least one donkey, and maybe he had another one, maybe he didn't. It doesn't really matter. The point is, he's on a donkey, okay? And so he comes in on a humble animal. I don't know if you saw the, the painting on this side, which was a depiction of Alexander the Great, right? And you saw him, and he was not on a donkey, right? He had an elephant up ahead, and he had his big horse and the chariot thing, and he had all the slave people carrying all the, the loot they got from conquering these people. So, totally different thing, and weapons of war, everybody's brandishing their weapons. So this is what is being compared here. When the Prince of Peace comes, it is a completely different thing than what the world does. Um, and Zechariah, so he, when the Prince of Peace comes in triumph, he is presaging a new era of peace. You know, what kind of peace? Zechariah goes on to say, I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem, and the battle bow shall be cut off, and he shall command peace to the nations. That's Zechariah, Zechariah 9 10. Okay, so saying totally different thing. When the Prince of Peace comes, it will not be like, woohoo, you know, slash and burn the enemies. It will be, everybody put down your weapons. Okay, then I have another picture. Maybe we'll get to it later. Of, um, of two more triumphs. One was of uh, Vespasian and, and one was of Titus. And so, if you remember, Jesus, uh, have we done it yet? Jesus, he predicts the uh, fall of Jerusalem. He says, you know, every, every stone, one stone will be torn down from another of the temple. And, and uh, they're like, what are you talking about, Jesus? Look at our beautiful temple. And he says, oh, it's toast, right? Yeah. Woo! Woo! Quick! Quick! Okay. So right there, this is from the Arch of Titus in Rome. You can still see this. So in 70 AD, when they conquered Jerusalem, they took away, they tore the temple down, just as Jesus said they would, and they took all the loot. And so this is the Romans carrying away the loot from the temple. So it's like the earliest depiction of the lampstand, the menorah. Can you see it? Yeah. That's them stealing all the stuff from the temple. So if you go to the city of Rome and look up the Arch of Titus, you can see this. Them celebrating like, yeah! So this is 
how the world does it, right? We conquered you, we're stealing all your stuff. Um, and then we have the triumph of Vespasian. And you can see uh, he is riding in a quadriga, which if you look at a lot of uh, Roman things, you can tell I have Rome on the brain. It's this chariot drawn by four horses. And it used to be how they depicted the gods, you know, motoring around. And then it became like, oh, triumphant generals and emperors get to ride in quadriga. So, so yeah, that is how the world does it. Um, so the, this is the contrast that Zechariah is making. The ascendance of God's kingdom is not going to appear the same as the ascendance of the worldly power. And yet, when Jesus comes in, his first move after his entry looks on the surface a little less Prince of Peace and a little more my way or the highway. You know, don't you think? Let's look at uh, verses 12 and following. Okay. And Jesus entered the temple of God and drove out all who sold and bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. He said to them, it is written, my house shall be called a house of prayer, but you make it a den of robbers. And the blind and the lame came to him in the temple, and he healed them. But when the chief priests and the scribes saw the wonderful things that he did, wonderful meaning amazing, right? and the children crying out in the temple, Hosanna to the son of David! You know, kids love chaos, right? So a big adult comes in and tosses tables, and the kids are still excited. Um, when they heard the kids yelling this, they were indignant, and they said to him, do you hear what these are saying? And Jesus said to them, Yes, have you never read, out of the mouths of babes and sucklings, you have brought perfect praise. And he went out and he went to the city of Bethany and lodged there. Okay, so cleansing of the temple. If you have ever been to my house, without knowing it, you have visited one of the world's most poorly designed kitchens. Um, there's no counter space. The fridge has to be a side-by-side -side because they put it so close to the island that you can't have a full door. You have to have the little baby side-by-side -side doors. Um, the stove takes up the whole dumb island, right? It's not an island Scott can make his pies on because the stove takes up the whole island. The drawers are right below the most convenient counter space, which is by the sink and the stove, right? So the drawers are there. So if you want to get silverware or an oven mitt or plastic wrap, the only way to do it is the person using the only available counter space has got to get out of your way so you can get your dumb fork or your plastic wrap or that kind of thing. So why do I bring this up? Because it is not wrong for every Dudley to want to be in the kitchen, right? That's not wrong. Um, it is not wrong to store your silverware in the kitchen because everyone uses it in the kitchen, right? Um, and it is not wrong to prepare your food on the most convenient countertop. Um, and when I do that, I'm not trying to block people from getting to the silverware or the oven mitts or the plastic wrap. I'm not trying to. And they're not trying to get on my nerves by getting into that stuff when I'm clearly standing here trying to make dinner, right? Nevertheless, there is all kinds of irritation on both sides, you know, Food, which is supposed to bring families together in this happy, joyous little time every day, can sometimes lead to irritation in the Dudley household. Like, what do you need now? Do you see me standing here? Right? These are things that are said around it. So I bring this up because worship of God is also a good and important thing, right? And by law, by law, 
the people needed to sacrifice the right kinds of animals. I just went through Leviticus in my personal reading, and we went all over the right kinds of animals for which occasion. Um, and they needed to give their offering in the right coinage. So everybody was there for good reasons, right? Everybody had a reason to be there. They meant well. But instead of promoting accessibility to worship and a worshipful mindset, all the chaos, all the wheeling and dealing was having the opposite result, right? Things that were meant to facilitate worship became barriers to entry. And instead of reverence and joy, there was noise and there was bargaining and there was getting bogged down in the details. And so the Prince of Peace has to reboot the system. And there is no time to be lost, right? The primary purpose of the temple is being defeated every instant that this goes on, right? He cannot take, he doesn't have three weeks. He cannot take three weeks to go around to every table and say, excuse me, would you mind moving this to like outside the court of the Gentiles? And I'll tell you what, no, it's important. He does not have time for that, right? People are not getting into worship for every second that this is going on. So boom, right? Jesus brings down the barriers. Get out of the way. Everyone's here to worship, right? You all have good intentions, but get out of the way of people trying to get to God. Get out of the way. Um, and the second he brings down the barriers, in come the blind and the lame and all the shouting kids, right? Here come God's beloved. They want healing. They want to be near him. They want to praise him. The second Jesus brings down the barriers, everyone can get to God. And that is what he wants. He wants everyone getting there. So we have, look at our lovely church here. We have our lovely church here. You know, the lamp needs to play things, but lovely church on the whole. And God wants to meet people here. He wants to heal people here. He wants to restore them through their praise. And we want to make sure that we do not gum up the works with our well-intentioned barriers to entry, right? With our dress codes, with our behavior codes, with our little litmus tests, we can see from the story that if we do erect barriers to entry, it might just be our table that Jesus wants to upset next. And it might just be us, we find, standing outside of what he is trying to do, while all the people who are trying to get in and see God just rush in and find joy. We don't want that to be us, right? Put down our little well-intentioned barriers, and let's all just go in and find God and find joy. Okay, let's keep going. Verse 18. Oh, it's back. Oh, look, there's Jesus. This is the Rembrandt etching of Jesus. Um, look at the mess in there. Now, Rembrandt was not alive. He's just using his imagination. But clearly, it was not just like one table here, one table there, because that's nothing to get upset about, right? Look at this mess. Okay. by the wayside, he went to it and found nothing on it but leaves only. And he said to it, may no fruit ever come from you again. And the fig tree withered at once. When the disciples saw it, they marveled, saying, how did the fig tree wither at once? Like, these guys have been seeing all kinds of things. I'm amazed by their amazement at the fig tree. <laughs> Whatever. And Jesus answered them, truly I say to you, if you have faith and never doubt, you will not only do what has been done with the fig tree, 
Right? You, you will not only wither things right and left. I already have that power. Um, <laughs> but even if you say to this mountain, be taken up and cast into the sea, it will be done. And whatever you ask in prayer, you will receive if you have faith. Uh, my sister and her family, they live in Davis, California, which is near Sacramento. And basically, everything grows there. And they have peach trees, and they have tomato plants, and they have chickens, and they have lemons. And out front, they have a giant fig tree, which just every year goes to town. Right? And I think it supports half the birds in Davis, because it's so tall, only the birds can get up top. And every year, her family needs maybe a handful of the figs. Right? And the neighbors will come and say, can we pick some figs? I'm like, yeah, pick some figs. And every year, I mourn my figlessness up here. And I always say, oh, with all those figs, you can make fig jam, which I love, right? I said, you can make fig jam, and I could eat it when I come down. And every year she does not make fig jam. So anyway, so the climate of Davis is not very different from the climate around Jerusalem. They're both kind of hot and dryish, and they just need a little irrigation to get things going. So there is no reason for this tree to be unfruitful, right? Jesus approaches it with expectation, and he finds nothing but leaves. On the stupid thing. And what is the point of all that photosynthesis and stuff if you aren't going to put that energy into reproduction and spreading your seeds by producing fruit? That is the whole point, right? That's what all living things are trying to do. Reproduce and spread their seeds. And this fig tree is not doing it. Um, why are you hoarding all that sunlight and good dirt and somebody is watering you? Why are you hoarding that to yourself just to be leafy? Which doesn't do any good. Um, so Matthew tells us that Jesus was hungry. So maybe his blood sugar is a little low. And so imagine his excitement when he sees this fig tree. And I did have a question here. I thought, okay, he was staying with friends outside of town. Why did they give him breakfast? I just don't know. But okay, that's questions the Bible doesn't answer. Um, so have you ever had this happen to you? You have some little treat in the fridge that you put aside for yourself, and you have thought of it with excitement, and maybe you skipped eating something else because you thought, oh no, I'm going to have that little thing I put in the fridge, right? And then you go to the fridge, and it is gone. It's gone, right? Somebody ate it. That's what happened in my house. Somebody ate it, usually saw it. Somebody ate it, or someone threw it away, right? And then you get nothing in return for the wonderful something you expected. And have you ever found that when you expect something and you get nothing, it's way worse than if you weren't expecting anything and you get nothing. I mean, who cares, right? You've been wasting time thinking about it. So here is Jesus thinking, oh, victory, woohoo, breakfast, right? And then nothing, nothing. So how is this story a living parable? Jesus has come to inaugurate the kingdom of God. All these hundreds and hundreds of years, God has been working toward this week in history, right? He chose Abraham, he chose Isaac, he chose Jacob. He saved the sons of Jacob from famine and slavery in Egypt, and he made them into his people. He restored them from exile, he gave them his son, right? He has poured into these people for hundreds and hundreds of years and looked forward to the fruit of the plan, right? Here it comes, here comes my son, and the plan will be fulfilled. And what has he found? Has his care paid off? Um, the unfruitful fig tree, oh, we're gone again. Okay, the unfruitful fig tree 
is a living embodiment. You remember, um, if you were here with us when we studied Isaiah, you remember in Isaiah 5, I want to turn to Isaiah 5. I had a lovely slide of a vineyard, just picture a vineyard in your head. Um, Isaiah 5, I could have put a bookmark here, but it fell out. Okay, Isaiah 5. <clears throat> Let me sing for my beloved a love song concerning his vineyard. My beloved had a vineyard on a very fertile hill. He digged it. I don't know why he digged it instead of he dug it. But he digged it and cleared it of stones and planted it with choice vines. He built a watchtower in the midst of it and hewed out a wine vat in it. And he looked for it to yield grapes, but it yielded wild grapes. Wild grapes are not as sweet as um, conventional grapes. Okay. And now, O inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge, I pray you, between me and my vineyard. Suddenly it's my vineyard. What more was there to do for my vineyard that I have not done for it? When I looked for it to yield grapes, why did it yield wild grapes? And now I will tell you what I will do to my vineyard. I will remove its hedge, and it shall be devoured. I will break down its wall, and it shall be trampled down. I will make it a waste. It shall not be pruned or hoed, and briars and thorns shall grow up. I will also command the clouds that they rain no rain upon it. For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel. It, and the man, the man, the men of Judah are his pleasant planting. And he looked for justice, but behold, bloodshed. He looked for righteousness, but behold, a cry. Right? So this passage in Matthew 21 is another version of another parable, right? This is a living parable. I'll show you the vineyard, maybe. We already read it, but there's the vineyard. Okay. Uh, oh, no, yeah, okay. So what has served its purpose, or what has not served its purpose, serves no purpose, and it will be set aside. So Jesus has come to be the fulfillment of all the promises to, to Israel. And Israel, some of Israel has accepted him, but not all of Israel has accepted him. And particularly the ones who have rejected him tend to be the ones with all the power and religious authority. So it's like, oh, we don't want to be in that position, right? We want, yes, Jesus. Okay, so let's move on quickly while we have slides to the last bit. Well, see, last time I talked was too long, and this time it's okay. All right. Um, yes, what do we do about, oh, I didn't read that part. So let me read it. Okay. And when he entered the temple. Oh, this is a fig tree. Dang it. I deleted that slide. Whatever. Okay. And when he entered the temple, the chief priests and the elders of the people came up to him as he was teaching and said, By what authority are you doing these things? And who gave you this authority? Jesus answered them, I also will ask you a question. And if you tell me the answer, then I also will tell you by what authority I do these things. The baptism of John, where did it come from? From heaven or from men? And they argued with one another. If we say from heaven, he'll say to us, well, why didn't you believe it then? But if we say from men, then everyone will be mad at us, right? We are afraid of the multitude, for all hold that John was a prophet. So they answered Jesus, we don't know. And he said to them, Neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. 
Oh, and then we stop. I was like, wait, I didn't prepare that part. Okay, yes, then we stop. Um, okay. No, I wasn't supposed to read that yet. I was going to talk more about the casting mountains into the sea. You probably were sitting there wondering, what about the casting mountains into the sea? Okay. Hold this verse in your head. That's why I had that dumb slide. Okay. So remember that one for later, because we won't have time to read it yet. But we're back to the casting mountains into the sea. Yes, we're back to casting. This is too important to skip. Okay. Um, okay, if we if we take this is what happens when I go off notes. If we take it in context, Jesus has given just given his disciples an object lesson in being fruitful for God, right? Um God pours into us. He feeds us, waters us, plants us, puts a little hedge around us, puts a washer, and he expects to see us yield something for the kingdom, right? Um, and when we don't, that's not good, right? Remember the parable of the, the, the talents, right? The only guy who gets in trouble, you know, if you eke out a little, look, God, I made this little ugly thing. And he's like, well, thanks, good job for trying, right? It's the guy who's like, oh, no, I thought I'd get in trouble, so I buried it in the ground, right? That is not the answer God wants to hear. When he pours into us, he wants us to see what we will make of it for his kingdom. Whatever it is, however pathetic it may look on the surface, if, dang it, we gave it a shot, right? Okay, so he's given them this lesson. Look, if you bear no fruit at all, that is not a good thing, okay? But the disciples, it's so funny, they seem more interested in the pyrotechnics. Did you notice? Like, how did Jesus make the tree wither instantly, okay? Usually it takes me a few weeks to kill a plant, right? How did Jesus <laughs> make it happen instantly? And his, he gives them this hyperbolic response, like, mm, you know, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter, right? With faith, you can wither fig trees. You can move mountains, right? Um, it reminds me of the mustard seed discussion, right? If you have the little mustard seeds, these things will happen. And it's not the physical pyrotechnics that should distract you, right? It is the faith doing the heavy lifting. It's not that the Jesus can zap things. It's that he has the faith behind it. It's the faith doing the heavy lifting. Um, but then we think, well, how do we have faith and never doubt? I don't know, maybe some of you, anybody here? Had an experience where you, oh, excellent, where you had faith and you never doubted. Talk to Sylvia about what it felt like. Because the rest of us are like, oh, I know I should have faith and not doubt, but I feel the doubt, right? And then, and then it bombs and you're like, oh, so much for that. Um, of course we doubt. And so, but some have, some have interpreted this verse to mean if your mountain did not move, it's your dang fault because you doubt, right? It's because you didn't have the strong enough faith, which directly contradicts what Jesus says about the mustard seed, right? It's like, you know, have your faith and it can do the heavy lifting, right? Even if your faith is a little bit kind of wavering and a little bit pathetic, it can do it, right? Um, because, you know, faith involves God, and God is, is behind it. Okay, so we think, well, Jesus, how do we, how do we avoid the doubt downfall? Um, okay, if we look back, and it would be nice if I had a slide for this, but it would have died in now, so it's okay. If we look back at Jesus' life and ministry, what does he want us to understand and believe with our whole being? I think if you look at his life and ministry, I think there are a few things, right? That he wants to be in relationship with us. You see that when Jesus was on earth, he had friends, he sought out people, he wanted to get to know people. I think, I think of Zacchaeus in the tree, right? It didn't matter. He wanted to get to know you. He wanted to have a relationship. Um, I was at a re 
I was at a retreat this weekend, and um, we were having a little discussion around the table. And, and one lady, she uh, she wasn't a believer, and she said, "I, but I envy you because you guys are talking about this relationship, and I don't have that, and I kind of envy you that relationship." So, anyway, that is it's like we if you have a relationship with God, that is something to be envied, right? And that is what Jesus wants. He wants relationship. Um, two. Uh, that people who go looking for him can find him, right? Think of Zacchaeus again. People who go, think of blind people yelling by the side of the road. People who are looking for him manage to get to him. And the disciples often will try to put up the barriers to entry. You're too noisy, you're too blind, you're too non-Jewish, right? Um, you're too young. But Jesus is always just like, stop, right? Let the people come to me. Let them come. Um, he has compassion on us. He has compassion, the way he responds to people. Um, he forgives us. He wants us to forgive others. He has taught about that. Um, he wants us to know that God is listening to our cries. Right? He tells us how to pray to our Father. Um, he wants us to know, and this is the lesson he is going to be teaching in his final week of life, he wants us to know that suffering can serve a purpose. Right? So far, at this point, they do not believe that. They do not like what is going to happen to him. They're all in denial. But he's, he wants to show them. Suffering can serve a purpose. Um, he seems, and this week will also show that life is difficult, but God will stick with you, right? Life is difficult. Um, when he cleared out the temple, he showed us again. We are made to praise and celebrate and love God, right? And don't, don't get in the way of anybody else doing that. And, and don't let anything get in the way of you doing that. That's what we were made for. And he's going to show them in this final week that death is not the final word. Right? These are all things that if we look at Jesus' life and ministry, he wants us to believe with everything we have. And it is easy to not believe some of these things. right? Um, but if we can believe these things, Jesus is saying these are mountain-moving truths. These are things that can move mountains in your life. Um, you know, pray along these lines. Plant your mustard seed in this soil. Don't waste your prayers on magic tricks, right? Oh, Lord, please help me learn how to wither fig trees, right? Who cares, right? Take your little mustard seed and plant it in this soil and see what God will do. And watch him move mountains. And never mind the pyrotechnics. Don't wish for that. Who cares, right? If there is a God, he can easily do those things. They don't matter. Okay? Alright. I've been telling you about Jackson's anxiety, and you remember you cannot mention this outside this room, especially if you see him, you cannot mention this because he's going. Um, and all the anxiety, his anxiety has caused us, right? Um, but I want I thought I should tell you about prayers and mountains move, which Pat just plug your ears because you already heard this. But um so he's been having panic attacks, he's just uh, up and down and um, crying, and I mean, this is not a boy who, well, he is a boy who cried a lot, but usually when he was three and there were tears of rage because he was on a fit. But, but crying for different reasons now. Anxiety, for, and, um, and oh my gosh, I've been praying my head off all year, and, and I just wanted to tell you about some mountains that have been moving, right? Um, a couple weeks ago, we were having a terrible time. He was having a terrible night. La, 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 la. And he, he was at a swim meet. He said, I don't want to do the last day of the meet. I want to go to church tomorrow. 
said in the 17 years I have known him, I want to go to church, Mom. It's always been, do we have to go? Why do I have to go, right? That's been 17 years. But two, three weeks ago, I want to go to church, Mom. That is a mountain move, ladies. That is a mountain move. Um, he has been inviting his girlfriend to church. And she has come four times now? That is a mountain move, right? He didn't used to want to be there in the first place. Now he wants to be there and he is inviting his girlfriend. Okay. Um, he has been playing the guitar all year. And <laughs> I mean, the guitar is fine. So, anyways. Um, Do you want me to stop? <laughs> <laughs> it's too late. Okay, anyways. I can erase it. That's true. Yeah. Um, anyways, so, and he's got a repertoire. And I hear the repertoire probably twice a day for months and months, right? But for the first time, um, a week or two ago, I heard him playing a Christian song. Oh. And I know, I know. Nice. Ladies, these are miracles. If you know my son at all, they are miracles. They are mountains moved. Because if you stand by him in church, he doesn't sing. I mean, he sings his head off at home, and he does not sing in church. He just stands there like a lump. But click, but there he was singing a Christian song. And I, I was just dumbfounded. I was downstairs because you can hear him throughout the whole house, even though the door is closed. I was dumbfounded. Um, so is this the way I would have chosen to have these things happen? No way, Jose, right? I would not have chosen this. But if God can bring goodness out of this badness, I will praise him. I praise his name. I cry, but I praise his name. So I just wanted to say, it does move mountains, right? My faith was about this big Jackson's entire life. He was your classic PK. Hey, church, you may have seen me when he was young, dragging him across the lobby, screaming and kicking, and he didn't want to be there. And I've had other moms say, I felt so much better when I saw Jackson. <laughs> I'm so glad I could help. Um, so this horrible year he has had, God has used it. Right? And, and, and so I praise his name. I cry, but I praise his name. Okay, so Jesus re-enters Jerusalem. Do you have another slide? Because it's up. No, it's just, oh, it's just the verse I already read you. Okay. Jesus enters Jerusalem, and then uh, the rich, religious leaders do not like what he says or what he does. And they do not like the influence he has over other people. They don't like how everybody treats him like a rock star, and so they want to discredit him. Nothing new. We've seen this. Um, and we understand this very natural MO, right? Anytime someone runs for political office, for example, the opposition tries to dig up dirt on the person, right? And they usually succeed because people are people and everybody's got their dirt, right? So you just dig until you find it. Um, but it is tougher to do that with Jesus. So they go after his tendency. It's like, hmm, you have this tendency not to cite rabbinic authority. You know, all the rabbis at the time, they would say, as so-and-so taught, as tradition has taught, right? You cite rabbinic authority. When we were in grad school, um, this is how it works in grad school. If you ever go to grad school in English, right? You make your little point, but you've read all these books and these articles, and this is the other, this is the famous person who agrees with you, right? So that you don't look like such an idiot. Um, but Scott's advisor was such, such a confident man and such an original thinker that his books, like, his books would be like this thick. Because he didn't bother 
sighting anybody. He's like, well, nobody's thought this idea before. So I'm just going to write my little idea. Right? You can all cite me, but I'm not going to cite you because you didn't have this idea. Right? <laughs> Same thing. Jesus is not citing other people. They're like, who gave you authority? Right? You don't tell us who gave you authority. Um, he references scripture. Right? Um, if he refers or defers to anything, it's scripture. But he never says anything like, well, as you know, famous commentator says, or as the traditions have taught us. He never says it. And even when other folks came to him with Moses, in Matthew 19, remember the marriage passage, they came to him with Moses, pretty authoritative guy, biblically speaking. Jesus accepts it, but he also dares to comment on Moses and what Moses' motives were. You remember, he says, for your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives. Meaning, oh yeah, yeah, but this is why Moses gave you that. And that must have blown their minds as well. How dare you tell us you think you know what Moses was thinking, right? Jesus just everywhere, just like, oh no, I've got my authority, right? And yeah, I'm above Moses because I can tell you why Moses gave you that law. Ah! This is <laughs> astonishing and offensive and arrogant if Jesus is not who he claims to be. And so Jesus comes with their tricky little question through a side door. And I was like, well, what about John the Baptist? What about John the Baptist, he says. You know, he's also a controversial guy, but at least he's dead, and no one can follow him around anymore, so where did his authority come from? And they find themselves boxed into a corner, right? Either answer is going to get them into trouble, so they decline the answer. And Jesus says, okay, well then, I'm not going to answer you either. The end. So that got me to thinking um, a little bit about what do we do when we don't like something the Bible teaches, right? If we don't, because they're saying, we don't like what you teach. And he says, well, where's my authority come from, right? So what do we do when we don't like something the Bible teaches? Um, if we don't like what the Bible says about how to treat a certain person or behaviors to be avoided or what we should do with our money, we have our own sneaky ways around Bible authority, don't we? I was trying to think about the sneaky ways we have. We say, oh, that was the product of a certain time and culture, right? It doesn't really apply anymore. Times have changed. That's one of our favorites. Um, or, oh, that only applied to that particular person in that particular situation, right? It wasn't a universal kind of thing. We like that. Or we say, I am following the spirit of the law, not the letter, right? The spirit of the law. Or, you know, the Bible was written by people, and they made mistakes, so mistakes have crept in, and clearly this is one of them, right? So these are our sneaky ways around biblical authority. But, you know, I think Jesus is a pretty upfront guy, and I think he can handle us saying, I know you want me to do this or not do this, but I don't want to obey you. Try it, right? At least then we are being honest with ourselves and with Jesus instead of telling ourselves lies and telling him lies. Um, a friend recently asked me, you know, she said, well, we're looking for someone to, um, <laughs> we're looking for someone for our teenage son to live with, you know? <laughs> and she said, we're, so we're asking people to pray about it. And I said, I'm not gonna pray about it. Because <laughs> I don't want another teenager. <laughs> Mine are plenty. I, I, and I told Scott, I said, you know, I think if God gave me an audible voice, I would disobey. 
<laughs> I'm just being honest, Lord. And I think, well, okay, if he gave me an audible voice, I would wrestle. But I'm just letting you know, Lord, I don't want to do that. I don't want to obey that at all, at all. So, you know, you need to move a mountain if that is something you want out of me. So I think we can tell God, you know, Lord, here is this Bible verse. I hate it. I'm not going to obey it. If you want me to obey it, you got to move a mountain in my heart because I just, I can't do it, right? But, you know, we don't need to tell ourselves stories, and we don't need to tell Jesus stories. We can just say, I don't like it, and I don't want to obey it. Help me to see why it's here, right? Okay, so, because Jesus is an upfront guy. I think Jesus, Jesus would prefer our honesty. He would prefer our honesty. Um, because that honesty says, you have the authority, and I am weak, instead of saying, no, you know, you don't have any authority in this area. Okay, yes. Let's pray. I know that's a weird, abrupt ending. And then I have an announcement, so let's pray. Father in heaven, I'm sorry to end on that rebellious note. Um, I just pray, Father, there are areas in our lives where we are struggling to obey you. Would you please move those mountains in our heart? Would you help us to trust, Lord, that you love us, you want a relationship with us, that uh, you seek after us. Lord, all the things we have learned today, Father, that you have given us many things and we look forward to seeing fruit from our lives. Uh, Lord, that you want nothing to get in the way of us loving and celebrating and praising you, Father. We pray that we would pursue you wholeheartedly and that we would not prevent anyone else from trying to do that as well. And uh, just be with us this week, Lord, as we uh, enter the week before Holy Week the weekend in which you were doing other things, but um, help us to prepare our hearts for Holy Week, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. And so I have two announcements. One is next week is spring break, so you can come here, but you'll be by yourself. Um, and But then the week after is Holy Week, right? The week after is Holy Week. It is also Eastside Academy Week. So uh, we're going to have a little week break where we all forget which end is up. And then that following Tuesday is the Eastside Academy Day. So maybe, maybe make a little note to yourself that devil's eggs are welcome on during Holy Week. Okay, thank you, ladies.